Okay, welcome everybody. Thank you all for coming. Sorry about the uh, improv uh, area here. We're doing our fellowship meal, so we're we're just winging it by being over here in the corner. Um, I tried to get the copier to work. The copier still does not work, and I hate it. And I've I've <laughs> prayed in precatory psalms against it, <laughs> and it just won't make copies for me. So we're going to go over the um, Westminster Confession chapters of the Church of Sacraments, Baptism, the Lord's Supper. We're going to try to cover those in this Sunday, and then the next Sunday will be our last time together. Um, so I appreciate you all uh, coming to these. And if you ever have any questions, feel free to, to call me or text me or email me. I'm happy to correspond with you about um, any and all issues related to God, the Bible, theology, all that kind of stuff. Okay? So let's go ahead and open up with, with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to be here again and to, to think about and talk about these wonderful truths of your holy word. And I pray that uh, you'd bless us as we seek to understand these things in the right way from scripture. We pray you'd help us to have a, a correct uh, understanding of the church and of sacraments, the two sacraments you've given to your church, and baptism and the Lord's Supper, that we would think rightly about these things and not be confused as uh, many have been through the centuries. And we pray that uh, our thoughts of you and our worship of you this day would be pleasing in your sight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What is that sound? Oh, it's the warmer? Yeah. Gotta have warm food, I guess. It's like God gave me a loud voice. Okay. The church. The Catholic or universal church, this is the Westminster Confession, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered together into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that fills all and all. Okay, so we have a doctrine of the invisible church and then a doctrine of the visible church. It's really important to know the difference between uh, those two things. Okay, the invisible church is real easy. That's just all of God's elect. That's all that were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, committed by God the Father to God the Son, and they enter into that covenant arrangement where Jesus agrees to come into the world and save them. Okay, that's the invisible church. That's all the elect that will ever be gathered in together under the, the one head of the church, Christ. So that's the invisible church. The invisible church just equals the elect. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal, that's what the word Catholic means. We, we had it before Rome destroyed it, so we, we still use it. The Catholic or universal church under the gospel consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and who else? All that profess to know Christ plus their families, their households, their children. Okay, So our doctrine of the visible church is consistent with what it was prior to the coming of Christ too that it was those that professed to be believers and their households, their children. Okay, And we don't see any evidence of any kind in the New Testament that that principle has been set aside or abrogated. Uh, what do you see baptized many times in the New Testament in Acts and 1 Corinthians? Households are baptized, right? Uh, and I, I would ask, just throw the question out to you. I remember being raised in a Baptist church. Uh, I remember thinking, re- reading all of that, reading Reformed theologians, and, and asking myself the question, If this change has taken place, and the only people that are supposed to be baptized are people that profess faith and not their families, why would the Holy Spirit put households being baptized into the scriptures in the New Testament? Why? If that change has taken place, why? I remember not being able to come up with a good answer to that. Okay, yes? And you'd also think that uh, there would have been a lot of uh, controversy. Yes, oh yeah. Trying to make people understand a different way of doing this. Right. It, that would have been unthinkable, especially to, to early Jews that heard the gospel. They would have been like, what? Our children don't come in to the to the church with us? Why not? 
Okay, so we see that the covenantal administration still includes children, still includes households, just like it always has. So there's, there's nothing, nothing new about that. Okay, so it's those that profess the true religion, the visible church, and their children, and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. So we look at the church, the church, the, those that profess to know Christ and their households, that's the kingdom of God on earth. Okay, that's the kingdom that Daniel prophesied about, a kingdom that would never be destroyed, that would never be overthrown. Okay, that's what the great Augustine or in the early church called the city of God. Okay, remember when, when the western half of the Roman Empire collapsed, a lot of people thought, that's it, the church is dead, it's going to die now. And Augustine wrote his book saying, no, 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 the church transcends all nations, it transcends all political ideologies. So the church has thrived everywhere on earth, in every nation, under every kind of political regime, whether it's capitalist, communist, or whatever. Okay, so the church transcends all of that. And the thing is, people that first came to America, a lot of them really saw America as the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of God. But what are we seeing happen now in our country? I mean, it's not a Christian nation anymore. I mean, not even close. But if America dies and collapses, what's going to continue on? church will always be here okay and jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against it there will always be a church on on the earth okay and point three of chapter 25 of the westminster confession says unto this catholic visible church christ hath given the ministry oracles and ordinances of god for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world and doth by his own presence and spirit according to his promise make them effectual thereunto but the only reason there are christians in this room right now is because of that Okay, it's because Jesus continues to build his church. He continues to call people to himself. He calls us away from sin and idolatry, and he justifies people and sanctifies them, and he will continue building his church uh, in the world, whether um, we're part of it or not. You know, there, I remember hearing a Reformed theologian say, before he was Reformed and understood God's sovereignty, he used to think he was really important uh, to God's purposes and wondered, what would happen if I died? Um, if you die, kingdom of God is going to be just fine without you, okay? <laughs> if, I, if I get hit by a bus on, on the way home from church today, okay, y'all might hopefully be a little sad, but the, the, kingdom, <laughs> the kingdom of God will, will continue. All, all will be well with the world. The, the God does not need me. He can raise up um, pastors from rocks, okay? It's no, it's no big deal for him. Okay, the next point. This Catholic church has been sometimes more, sometimes less visible. In particular, churches, which are members thereof, are more or less pure, according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances administered, and public worship performed more or less purely in them. Now, that is an extremely important point, because in the Roman Catholic religion, and in the Eastern Orthodox religion, the thing that makes you a true church is, is the priest of your parish, was he ordained by a bishop who is in communion with the Bishop of Rome? Okay, that's what makes you a true church. If their ordinations are broken, if the guy that, that ordained your priest is not in communion with the Pope in Rome, then your church is not a true church. Notice the way that we define the church. We don't define the church in static terms, but in dynamic terms. This church is only a true church insofar as it administers the ordinances, baptism, the Lord's Supper accurately, and as the gospel is preached accurately. So if I get up in the pulpit one Sunday and start preaching that you get into heaven by obeying God's law and uh, Jesus will help you do that, we're not a church anymore because we've lost the gospel, right? So it really doesn't matter who ordained you. you know, have you ever heard the idea, have you ever heard Roman Catholics or Eastern Orthodox talk about the idea of apostolic succession, that this bishop ordained this guy, ordained this guy, ordained this guy? The fact is, it doesn't matter. If I could show you that 
the person that ordained me could be traced all the way back to one of the apostles. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is, what do I teach? Because all it takes is one false teacher. And who ordained him? Who cares? I have no doubt. The apostles of Christ themselves, in, in the book of Acts, in the New Testament, they ordained people to ministry who turned out to be bad guys, who turned out to be heretics. Okay, So it's not a matter of who ordained you. It's a matter of what you teach. Are you faithful to the apostolic faith? Are you faithful to what the Bible says? Okay, So when we talk about one holy Catholic and what's the fourth mark? Apostolic church. That doesn't mean I can trace my ordination back to one of the apostles. It means I teach what the apostles teach. Okay, That's what makes us apostolic, not ordinations or anything like that. So individual churches are more or less pure based on how accurately they teach the Bible, how accurately they administer the ordinances, and how accurately they preach the gospel, and how, how uh, biblically faithful their worship is. Okay? When you go to, if you go to a church and it's a three-ring circus, and it's entertainment, uh, you have to wonder, how, how pure is that place? Is God really being worshipped here? Okay? All right, the next one, next point, point five. The purest churches under heaven are subject to both mixture and error, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. You'll know where they're, get, where they're getting that phrase, synagogues of Satan. From the uh, book of Revelation, remember those seven letters to the seven churches? I forget which one he says that they're, they're close to becoming a synagogue of Satan. Okay, But if a church degenerates in its preaching of the word and its understanding of the gospel to the point that it denies those things, it's not a church anymore. Okay, No matter who ordained the guy, it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is their faithfulness to the word of God and to the gospel. Okay, and then the last point of that point says, Nevertheless, there shall be always a church on earth to worship God according to his will. Okay, so the church, although it's been, it's been pared down to just maybe even a few believers in whole countries at times, it always exists and it continues to, to grow and to flourish and, and everything else. Anyone here ever heard of the, the Albigensians, the Waldensians, and that whole group? Okay, people have wondered, where was the church during the Middle Ages when, the, with the rise of the papacy and the rise of, of the, the Roman state church? Where was the church? The fact is, there were Christian people, thousands of them, that lived in the mountains in northern Italy, in southern France, uh, in southern Spain, and they're called the Waldensians, the Albigensians. What's amazing is that when the Reformation happened uh, in Geneva with John Calvin and that whole gang, they ended up making contact with the Waldensians. The Waldensians met with Calvin, and basically said, it's about time you guys figured this stuff out, because they had rejected all the Mary stuff, they had rejected purgatory as a doctrine of Satan, they had rejected all that stuff in the 1100s, okay, so half a millennium before the Reformation, there's always been a church in the world, and there were believers in the medieval church too, there were a lot of true believers there too, but the, as the institution grew, and as you had the idea of state churches, that really hurt the church, but the church has always continued on, God always has his people. Okay, and the last point of, the, of the, this chapter says, There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope in Rome in any sense be head thereof. Now that's where our version of it stops. But the original version of the Westminster Confession went on to say about the Pope, But is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition, that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is call, called God. Okay, so it used to be when you took your vows to the Westminster Confession, you had to affirm the Pope as the Antichrist. Uh, have you ever heard of uh, Thomas Cranmer, the guy that, um, he was a martyr, he eventually was tied to a stake and, and burned to death, but because of being scared, I mean, would you, wouldn't you be pretty scared at the idea of being tied to a stake and burned alive? Because of that, Thomas Cranmer um, wrote out a confession uh, denying the gospel, 
and then later felt guilty of guilty for it, and then retracted his recantation, and then he was sentenced to die. And remember what he did when he walked up to the fire? He put his hand on the fire that signed the confession until it was burned to a stump. And then before he died, he turned to the Pope who was there and said to him, I denounce you as Christ's enemy and antichrist and all your false doctrines. And he just kept saying that over and over again, and then they tied him to the stake and, and burned him to death. So... So yes, the, the Pope is an Antichrist in, insofar as he teaches that you're, you're justified by your good works. But he's not the Antichrist um, in that sense. He, he's definitely one, though, as, as are all of them, insofar as they don't teach the truth. Okay, so that's the church. That's the doctrine of the church. The next chapter, chapter 27 of the Westminster Confession, is one of the most important chapters in the Confession, in my opinion. It's about our sacramental theology. We have a whole chapter just on sacraments, and then a chapter on baptism and the Lord's Supper. Because it's really important that you understand sacramental theology before you talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper. Has anyone here ever known someone or, or from the, the old school Campbellite Church of Christ? You have to be baptized by immersion by us to be saved? Really? Nobody? Wow. Man, I knew it. Anita's nodding her head. You met the old, the old Campbellite Church of Christ? Yeah. <laughs> Salvation by immersion by us and the absence of a piano in worship? Right. I had friends, my, my best friend growing up was from the, the Church of Christ, and we used to argue, we used to have these knockdown, drag-out fights about baptism, and he'd go to the same passages over and over again, and at the time I really wasn't sure how to, how to answer him, because some of those passages do sound like baptism does this. You know, the, all those who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He'd be like, Patrick, that's how you put on Christ. You're baptized in water, that's how it happens. And I would just be like, I know that's not true, but I don't know how to respond to you, so... It, the, the thing is, when you look at the sections of scripture that address the issue of justification, how we're justified before God, baptism's not part of the discussion there. Well, how are we justified before God? By what? By faith alone. Faith apart from works, right? Faith apart from anything, okay? And yet baptism being a sign of justification, a sign of that washing and renewal by the Holy Spirit, is sometimes spoken of as though it is what it signifies, so, listen to this. If, you, if you're confused at all about sacraments, my goal is that in 10 minutes, you never will be again for the rest of your life. Okay? <laughs> sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him, as also to put a visible difference between those that belong into the church and the rest of the world and to solemnly engage them to the service of God in Christ according to his word. Okay? So far, so good. Point number two, this is, the, this is the point that revolutionized everything for me. I finally understood sacraments after this one. And we're going to look at a bunch of passages. There is, in every sacrament, a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified once it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. Okay, so there's the sign. Okay, what, what are the two signs in the New Testament? What are the signs that God gave us? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay, what is the thing signified by baptism? The new birth. The what? The new birth. The new birth and our salvation, regeneration. That's what is signified by baptism. Now, the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine. What are those signs of? Okay, the body and blood of Christ. Okay, that's what they are signs of. And yet, when Jesus took up the bread at Passover with his disciples in the upper room, what did he say about it? This is He says, this is my body. Now, is it literally his body? 
No, it's a sign of his body, right? God likes to talk about sacraments as though they are what they signify. Now, I want you to see an example of this in the Old Testament. Before we get there, turn to Genesis 17. Genesis 17. What are the two sacraments in the Old Covenant? What are the two sacraments that have analogs to the baptism and the Lord's Supper? Circumcision. Circumcision. And what's the other one? Sacrifices. Close. One in particular that's real important. Remember, I'm sorry? Passover. Passover. So it's, but that's the main one. Always remember, the Lord's Supper, when Jesus instituted that, that was during what feast? Passover. The feast of Passover. Okay? So look at Genesis 17. I want you to see the way that God likes to talk about signs. Genesis 17, verses 10 and 11. Here you have the institution of circumcision. Now I want you to notice what he calls it. Just bear in mind, he calls the bread my body. This is my body. The, the, the cup, this is my blood. Notice what he says in verse 10. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a, what? Sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, back up to verse 10 again. What's the first thing he said? What's the first phrase of verse 10? This is my covenant. covenant. See how God does that? He likes to call the sign what it signifies. Circumcision was a sign of God's covenant, but he calls it my covenant. Same thing with with the the bread and the wine. The bread is a sign of the body of Christ. The wine is a sign of the blood of Christ. But he calls it my body, my blood. Circumcision he calls my covenant. See how he does that? Okay, so there's no reason to be confused about what the signs do. Okay, the signs don't affect what they signify, but sometimes the names and effects. Did you hear how the Westminster Confession said that? It says, once it comes to pass, the names and effects of the one, the sign, are often attributed to the other, what it signifies. Okay? So he calls circumcision my covenant. Is circumcision his covenant? No. It's a sign of his covenant. Same thing with this is my body, this is my blood. You see that? So there's no reason to be confused about this, right? It's okay for Paul to say, as many as, as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Does that mean that you're justified by being baptized? No. Okay, it's simply God doing what he's done from the beginning. He talks about the signs as though they do what they signify, as though they are what they signify. You see how he does that? See, you see both right here in Genesis 17, 10, 11. Look at it again. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. There he calls the sign my covenant. And then in verse 11, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So always remember that. With, the, with sacraments, there's a sign, and there's the thing signified. Sometimes God likes to call the sign what it signifies. Okay, that doesn't mean it does what it signifies, right? So I remember, like, seeing this and, like, using the confession, going through all the passages, and just wanting to bang my head up against the wall going, how did I miss that? Like, how did I not see that? God has always done that. He talks about the sign as if it is what it signifies. That doesn't mean it does what it signifies. Like, duh, how could you think that? What, what saves us is the work of Christ. What saves us is what Jesus did. We receive it by faith. And then baptism is a sign of that salvation. And, of course, as we just went over, we bring our households into the church with us. They receive the sign, too. Okay, does that make sense? So no one here is going to have any problem talking to the Church of Christ people anymore, right? Okay, good. Okay, point number three of chapter 27. The grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them, neither does the efficacy of a sacrament depend upon 
the piety or intention of him that doth administer it. Okay, you should all thank God for that. Um, if the efficacy of sacraments depends on how pious I am, they're probably not going to work for you most of the time, if not all the time. The, the, the power of the sacrament is based upon the word of institution, what the scriptures say about it. And Martin Luther had the, a famous little line that he said, he said, you can take com- communion from the devil himself as long as he gets the gospel right and as long as he repeats the words accurately. Okay? Sacraments are what they are, whether I'm a good guy or not. And historically, that was a huge debate in the early church. There was a giant controversy over that issue. Um, if you found out later that the guy that baptized you um, denies the deity of Christ, does that mean your baptism is invalid? No. And Augustine and a group called the Donatists had this huge debate about it, and Augustine wrote a lot against them. The efficacy of sacraments depends upon the, the sacrament itself and following the words of institution. Okay? It does raise some, some thorny, difficult pastoral questions and things like that. Like we've had, um, anyone here ever met someone who was baptized only in the name of Jesus? Jesus only baptism? You ever heard of that? There's some, some of like oneness Pentecostal churches around here, aren't there, Anita? Yeah. <clears throat> um, if someone comes and says, yes, well, I was baptized, but they did not repeat the Trinitarian formula that Jesus gave us, we would say, okay, that wasn't Christian baptism then. You need to get all three persons mentioned. Remember how Jesus says to do it in Matthew 28, baptize them in the name of and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's why I hit them three times with water, just to make sure. <laughs> in, in the name of each one. Okay? You, don't have, you don't have to do that. That's just a, a tradition. You can just do it once. But it's like you want to mention all three names of, of all three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, So you, that's the main thing. A sacrament is done rightly when the words of institution are followed correctly and the gospel is preached rightly. That's where you have the, the sacraments done rightly. Okay. There are only two sacraments ordained by Christ in the gospel. That is to say, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, why do they have to put that in the confession? How many sacraments does Rome have? A lot. <laughs> seven. Okay, seven. They, they, they have marriage as a sacrament. There's um, penance, and there's extreme unction, and holy orders, and uh, I'm leaving one of them out. I don't remember. Last but Yeah, yeah, last rites. Last rites. Yep. In fact, remember when John F. Kennedy was, assa- was assassinated, they hooked him up to um, machines to keep the blood flowing in his body so that last rites could be administered to him before he was officially pronounced dead because they think that that needs to happen before you die. Obviously. Yeah, and they do it like every. So if you're dying and they think you're close, they'll do it. And then right. if you don't die, then they do it again. Right. I, I don't get it. it that, <laughs> that's the whole sacerdotal way of salvation. We, we don't. God, the Holy Spirit, works directly upon the souls of men through the gospel. You don't, I mean, as much as I'd love to be there to hold your hand when you're dying, if I'm not there, it doesn't matter, okay? If your faith's in Christ and you die with your faith in Jesus Christ, you are going to heaven, okay? Because you're justified and your sins will never be accounted against you because of the the work of Christ. Okay, the sacraments of the Old Testament in regard to the spiritual things thereby signified and exhibited were for substance the same with those of the new. Hear what we're saying there? Circumcision and baptism are signs of the same thing. They are both signs of exactly the same thing. Okay, now look at Romans chapter 4. Look at Romans 4. I remember fight, fighting through these issues um, as a being raised in baptistic circles. Look at Romans 4.11. Here's how the Apostle Paul understands what circumcision was a sign of. You see it? Verse 11. Paul writes in Romans 4, verse 11, And he, talking about Abraham here, received the sign of circumcision, a seal 
of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. Okay, I want you to think about what you just read there. Circumcision is a sign of justification by faith. That is what it is a sign of. And yet, who was uh, circumcision administered to? Little babies. Babies. So a sign of personal justification by faith can be given to an infant child. Why, why would we do that? Because God said to. Because God told them to. Now, if Abraham was thinking baptistically, he would have been like, no, 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 God, you're wrong about that. <clears throat> I made a profession of faith, and I need to wait and see if Ishmael and Isaac have the fruits and make a profession of faith before they're circumcised. And that's just not an argument that happens. It's not an argument that happens in the New Testament either. Okay? So circumcision is a sign of personal faith, personal justification before God, and yet it was given by God's command to infants who could not make a profession of faith. Okay, that was a big turning point for me personally, my own understanding of, of the church, sacraments, all that stuff. Okay. All right. Um, and also Passover and the Lord's Supper. Think about Passover, um, the feast of Passover. What was that? What was that to help the people of Israel remember? That God passed over the killing of their firstborn. That's right. And what did the angel of Yahweh see that would make him pass over the house? The blood of the lamb. I mean, you see the gospel there? I'm really excited. I'm done with this the little mini-series on covenant theology to walk through Exodus. The gospel is just everywhere in Exodus. It's, not, it's unbelievable how many ways you see it in the book of Exodus. But the slaying of a lamb and the blood on the doorpost, the angel sees the blood of the blemish-free lamb and passes over and the wrath of God doesn't fall upon the house. What does John the Baptist say the first time he sees Jesus in public? Behold, the lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. You see how it all ties together. You can't be like, yeah, the New Testament is just this brand new thing, never heard of. Not at all. It's simply the fulfillment of everything foreshadowed and hammered home in a million different ways in the Old Testament. You see the gospel just everywhere in the Old Testament uh, once you learn how to, to read it in a Christ-centered way. Okay, so Passover and the Lord's Supper are just uh, two sacraments that refer really to the same thing, the shed blood of the Lamb. Um, we, we're going to be doing the Lord's Supper this morning. We'll see that again. Okay, um, so th that's our sacramental theology. Now, the next um, chapter is of baptism. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, okay, of his engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life, which sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the world. Okay, so baptism is uh, ordained by Christ and is to be a sign of all those things. Our engrafting into Christ, our engrafting into the church, regeneration, remission of sins, all that stuff. Okay, point two. The outward element to be used in this sacrament is water, wherewith the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost by a minister of the gospel lawfully called thereunto. Okay, so you can't baptize each other in bathtubs and, and like in pools in your backyard and things like that. It needs to be done. Baptism really is a part of worship. It needs to be part of a worship service okay, in front of the people of God. You should have the people there. Okay. Now, the next point, this is a little bit controversial. Dipping of the person into the water is not necessary, but baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. Okay. Now, I was dunked 
completely underwater when I was 16 years old. And I thought that's the only, that, that is the only way true baptism can happen <clears throat> until, you know, years later. But I wanted to share a story with you. And this is something that um, Robert Dabney, a good Reformed theologian, and other uh, Reformed guys have pointed out. For some people, to be dunked underwater would be really, really hard uh, for them to do. And there was a young guy that started coming to the church that I went to when I was an undergrad, and he had um, cerebral palsy that was really bad, and he had no control of his hands and legs, and he was in a, a mechanical wheelchair, had to have someone looking after him all the time. And there was a young kid whose uh, parents were missionaries, and this guy was like the most zealous evangelist I, I think I've ever met in my entire life. This young guy was just blew us all away. He would go uptown to the bars every Friday and Saturday night, every weekend, and witness to people and bring a bunch of drunks to church on Sunday. He would just sit down and talk to people and talk to them about the gospel and give out tracts and everything else. He shows up at church with this guy in this wheelchair and brings him every week to church. And he eventually comes to Christ. He had real bitterness. Real, this, this young guy was really upset that, that he was the way he was. And so when they baptized him, they they helped him. We did it at a lake, and they actually took him out into the lake, and and actually submerged him all the way underwater. I remember standing on the shore, and he was almost hysterical with fear. I mean, imagine that. What's the first thing you do when you come up out of the water? You breathe, and you wipe the water out of your eyes, don't you? And he was he was shaking and asking someone to towel off his face because he couldn't do it himself. And he got back to the shore, put him in the in his wheelchair, and he he looked humiliated to me. And I thought, I remember even then thinking, there was something really wrong with what we just did. Like, but I wasn't thinking sprinkling or pouring them. <laughs> I wasn't thinking that. I just thought that was not right, what just happened. But think about people, too, that are, that are elderly or whose bodies are frail. You can't do that with them. Or place, people that live in, uh, the, in central Australia where there's not enough water to dunk anyone in anything anyway. Besides that, also, we, we maintain that... Um, baptism is a sign of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, of the pouring out of the blood of Christ, the sprinkling of the, the blood of Christ. And so sprinkling or pouring better captures what it is. It's a, it's a washing. It's not an immersion. It's a washing away of the sins and things like that. So that's one of the reasons that we, we uh, sprinkle or pour. Okay. So I, I, I remember the first Reformed churches I ever went into, I was like, where do they baptize people? It's like in that little thing up there. Like, well, how could you possibly get in that? Okay. There's not enough water in there. Sprinkling or pouring, that's Roman Catholic. That's like what the Catholic people do. So not everything is wrong just because Rome does it. So, okay. All right. Not only those that actually profess faith in the obedience of Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. Look at 1 Corinthians 7, 14, please. 1 Corinthians 7, 14. I think is a is an important passage because it, it does address the covenantal status of children that are born to at least one Christian parent. Okay, now let's back up to um, verse twelve and read twelve through fourteen of First Corinthians seven. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say: If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Isn't it interesting um, the way that the church addresses this issue of being um, in a mixed marriage where you have a believer and an unbeliever? Remember how this was enforced in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah? What did Nehemiah tell them to do after he beat up on them? Instead of divorce them all, he said put them all away. And those kids too. Pretty, pretty hardcore. But that's not the way it is now. Verse 14. 
For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but now they are holy. Okay? So the unbelieving partner in a mixed marriage like that does not negate the faith of the one that's the believer. Such that the offspring is holy as opposed to unclean. Now, I'm sure you all read Leviticus at least once a week, right? (laughs) Remember, um, unclean versus holy. Unclean versus holy. If this happens, you're unclean until evening. Unclean for the rest of the week. Unclean for this many days. What did that mean? That meant you had to be outside the camp. The term unclean meant you weren't to be considered part of the assembly for a while. If you were holy, it's because you were part of the covenant community. You were part of the church, right? So what this is saying is that the child that's born to a mixed marriage... The unbelieving spouse is sanctified such that that child is holy, not unclean. You see what that's saying? The child's part of the community. If there's just one believing parent, that child has a right to be part of the church, okay, to be baptized. Okay? So real, real important um, concept there. Now, point six in the section on baptism. Oh, excuse me, for, uh, point five. Although it be a great sin to contemn or to, to contempt, to have contempt for, or neglect this ordinance, yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto it, as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it, or that all that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. Now, what's the, the major proof text that a person can die under the new covenant without baptism and go to heaven? It happens... Yeah. Just minutes after the death of Christ, the guy on the cross that repents, he wasn't baptized, was he? But Jesus said what to him? Today. Today you'll be with me in paradise. So he dies under the new covenant administration of the covenant of grace because the new covenant begins with the death of Christ. And so baptism, while it's sinful to neglect it and not do it, it's not so inseparate, they say, so inseparably annexed unto salvation as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it, meaning um, we're not saved by our baptism, right? Okay. Point six, the efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered. Yet notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited, conferred, and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth unto, according to the counsel of God's own will and his appointed time. Now, why are they saying that? Turn to John chapter three, if you would. John three, particularly verse eight. John three, verse eight. John 3, verse 8. Remember this whole discussion with Nicodemus and the Lord Jesus here? Okay, um, back up to verse 5 and we'll we'll read up to verse 8. Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Okay, what's he saying here? God has control of his own grace. Okay? I do not regenerate people by baptizing them. Okay? I don't make people alive in Christ by anything that I do. It is the Spirit who does it. When, where, and how he pleases. Okay, very important. This supernatural need that man has for a rebirth from on high is never to be taken away from God and given to man. Okay? Have you ever noticed what, what quote-unquote Christian groups where they believe baptism does this, what do they tend to wear instead of ties? 
clerical collars, right? You ever notice all the federal vision false teachers, how they all start dressing? Like they were Catholic priests. They all start wearing clerical collars. Why? Because they hold to that superstitious magic view of baptism. Okay? The efficacy of baptism is not tied to the moment wherein it is administered. They put that in there to protect the sovereignty of God. God is the one who does this when he pleases. We are, are called to administer the ordinances, to preach the word, but God does the rest. I planted, Apollos watered, God causes the increase. God is the one who makes it happen. Now, we're a little short on time. I wanted to tell you a little anecdote about John 3. Um, there was a, uh, I went to a, a reform conference many years ago, and Robert Godfrey told this story. He's a, a really good reformed theologian. He said there was a, a conservative evangelist in the Church of England, in the, the liberal Church of England. And this guy was a fiery preacher, a fiery evangelist, and he was called to come preach two sermons, a morning sermon and an evening sermon, at this liberal uh, Anglican church, huge church, overseen by this liberal bishop who didn't believe anything. And this guy's morning sermon is John 3, verse, um, five, or John 3, verse 3. You see it? Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this guy lays into this congregation for an hour about the need for a new birth and that you're dead in your sins and you're under God's just condemnation for your sins and you're all going to hell unless God makes you alive in Christ and you need to, to read the word of God and hear the gospel and you need to trust only in Christ. It just lights into him for a whole hour. And that afternoon, the, the evangelist gets a call from that liberal bishop and tells him, when you get into the pulpit this evening, you're going to apologize to my congregation, and you're going to retract what you said, all this silliness about the new birth and man's need for a supernatural new birth and all this other nonsense. We are offended by what you said, and you're going to take it back. So for his evening sermon text, he, he picks John 3, 7. See it? Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And lights into him for another hour. And then doesn't see the bishop, doesn't talk to him, shakes some people's hands, goes home, gets a call from that liberal bishop the following morning. It says, I just want to let you know, last night I was born again. Isn't that cool? It's the gospel that does it. I, don't, I can no more make you alive by baptizing you than I could jump over the moon. Okay, it's God that does it. And that's really what Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus. You guys, you Pharisees in your, in your long robes and all your stuff that you do, you think you're saving people by this stuff. That's not how it works. Everyone that's born of the Spirit, it's like the wind that blows. You can see where it goes and where it comes from, but you don't know when it's going to happen. God is sovereign in the matter. Okay? Um, let's see. Let's look at just a couple more little things here. The sacrament of baptism is, is but once to be administered unto any person. Okay? So if you were baptized as a covenant child, you could never be a member of a Baptist church. Why? Yeah. Because they would say you weren't baptized. They would not count your, your baptism you had as, a, as an infant child. And, of course, if you were well catechized and well taught, you would say, yes, it does, and I'm not going to be baptized again. Okay? Yes? Would it be a sin to be rebaptized? Yes, I think it would be. Because, as R.C. Sproul said, it's like looking up at God and saying, can you run that by me again? I'm not supposed to do that. So, but, yeah, that's, that's one, of the, one of the hardships there. Okay, so we'll, we'll go ahead and stop there, and we'll do the Lord's Supper and uh, witnessing next time, but next next Sunday will be our last meeting and together. If you all have any questions or anything at all, concerns, just uh, call me, text me, email me, or whatever, okay? All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word and for its clarity. We thank you so much for the gospel of Jesus Christ and for the 
efficacy of his work to save us from our sins. We pray that you would bless our worship of you this morning, that you'd bless the reading and preaching of the word, and bless your people as we sing your praises and as we join our hearts together in communion around your table. What a blessing uh, to have those those wonderful elements given to us as a gift um, to to prove your, your engagement to us and to strengthen our assurance. Uh, we're so thankful that the gospel was accomplished outside of us, that Jesus has died for us, and that his righteousness is ours by faith alone in him and not because of anything done in us or by us. And so help us to rejoice in that great salvation and the gift of eternal life. And may your name be glorified in all of our conversation and in all of our actions today on the Sabbath day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.